When you're driving, speed bumps force you to slow down. Some are big, some are small. Regardless of the size, they can really mess up your car if you go over them too fast. In this go, go, go world, society tends to have a negative view of speed bumps. But in my opinion, they don't have to be a bad thing. We all go through speed bumps in life, such as getting married, a spiritual awakening, having children, changing jobs, a trauma, and more. In this podcast, you will hear the various speed bumps that people have encountered and how those experiences have shaped them into the person they are now. Because every story has speed bumps, and that is what makes life interesting. everyone. I wanted to welcome you to another episode of Speed Bumps. And today with me, I have Lanny from Greener, Greener Postures again. And this is going to be a swap cast because not only is it going to be talking about speed bumps from both of our aspects, but also um, why she got started kind of into food preservation. It's all about food allergies. And I'm really excited to have her on today. She was able to answer some fantastic questions that I had because I've been going through my own speed bumps, and so I'm really excited to have her wealth of knowledge and just kind of pick each other's brains. So thank you, Lanny, for being here, and I'm super excited. Yeah, uh, thank you for having me. Um, once you asked me about you know, some questions about some food allergy stuff, it kind of brought up a whole bunch of research that I had done in the past when my son was sick when he was really little, um, but it's actually really... Um, it's a good time because his eczema is flaring up for the first time since he was little. And so there's something that's, that's bothering him now. And it's kind of leading me down this path anyways, to try to dig back into this information again, figure out what worked for us last time and see if we can get to the bottom of what's causing skin irritation. Yeah, definitely. Cause food allergies, uh, they can present as eczema. They can present as um, just like a chronic stuffy nose or runny nose. Um, it's not just your you know, throat tightening, although that is certainly a possibility with food allergies. Yeah, maybe that's where we could start for people who don't know. So it's been, it was annoying to me because it was very con, became convoluted because it became popular around the same time my son had the anaphylactic response to peanuts that people would say that they were gluten intolerant or or allergic to gluten. But that was people who maybe got a tummy ache after eating a lot of pasta, which is very, 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 very different than what anaphylaxis is. So um, anaphylaxis is a reaction the body has where um, more two or more of the body's systems are affected. So that would be breathing and skin, or that could be um, vomiting or and skin. It, it, so it can present in different ways, but the symptoms are usually severe rashes and hives, trouble breathing, swelling, vomiting, uh, diarrhea. And I think that's it. So obstruction of the airways is a concern because people's airways kind of swell shut. So when my mm-hmm. son had anaphylactic response to peanuts at only 18 months old, his his was first a rash and being itchy and then projectile vomiting and, and extreme swelling of his face and head. So his tongue was fat in his mouth. Even like the cartilage on his ears were really swollen. So I could barely see the hole in his ear. And that oh, wow. was really weird to me. So yeah. it was not not a tummy ache after an Italian meal. Yeah. So, so, um, 
There are varying levels of food allergies, though, because you can have small reactions where maybe you just have hives. But there's always this back burner concern that if you have can if you continue to have some kind of reaction at all to a food allergen, then it is potential for that to become deadly at some point or have a bigger reaction. So it could kind of build on itself. Is your son, um, can he be around airborne peanuts or is it just if he ingests it? So yes, he can be around airborne peanuts, but I said that, that I think has what's changed in our environment is that he started going to a learning center four days a week for a homeschool supplement and they have don't have any nut restrictions there like his preschool did, which was the last time he was any in any kind of school setting. Um, and he never went to public school. So this is new. Now he's nine. And, um, there had, they had a craft thing where they got pine cones and they put peanut butter on it and rolled it in bird seed to make bird feeders. And he was like, excused himself from the project, but it's kind of like all of that. And actually a kid like bit him when he was wrestling and the spot where he got bit has turned into new eczema spots that he hadn't had before. So I kind of, and I'm, he, he did confirm that that kid has peanut butter sandwiches for lunch. So I'm kind of wondering if maybe he's a little more sensitive to it, or at least now he is than he once was, or than we thought. So while I can eat, we have peanut butter in the house. We don't eat it around him usually. Yeah. And um, he has come into slight contact with it before and had his mouth start swelling but not had a bigger reaction. We were able to control it with Benadryl um, along the first symptoms. So yeah, yeah, um, it's hard to say if, you know, how much of a contact allergy he actually has. Yeah, I know before food allergies were introduced into my life, I kind of understood them. Uh, A little girl that I babysat uh, couldn't have any dairy. Another girl that I knew, hers was peanuts. So I kind of understood, but it's one of those things until you're in it, you don't realize how much it affects your life. And you right. start reading ingredient labels obsessively. Yes, it's very true because I was really inconsiderate of people. I I was like, I'm, I'm a loud mouth and I can be really critical. So I like, I was like, yeah, people are just babying their kids and they're making this stuff up. That was kind of where I was before yeah. our kid had a f- anaphylaxis. And even after that, my husband, Chud was like, no, no, I can't be peanuts. That's like a stereotype. It's not peanuts. It's not peanuts. And then I was like, but he had peanuts for a large amount of peanuts for the first time that day. And well, lo and behold, when we got him tested, it was more than, than just that, which is really what I wanted to try to, to dive into today is kind of like my research and what I did during that time, trying to figure things out because I've really felt like just dropped off by the medical industry. I just yeah. wasn't getting what my questions answered by the allergist specialist that we were seeing yeah. or by our primary care physician. And I was not as, a, well, this was my real awakening into more natural health uh, where I just kind of had never had a problem before. So I didn't really have to think too much about it. Yeah. Um, we, we started to look into first, we needed to have a test to test for allergens. But when you have such a large response, they won't do a skin prick test. Right. Because that is one of the ways that they test for allergies, which is basically they scratch your skin with a little needle that has the proteins of the potential allergen. And then they watch for a skin response and they they mark the area on your skin and you hang out in the office for a few hours and they watch that. 
The other way of doing it is actually taking a blood test and they test your blood against these allergens and watch for a response. And um, there is, it's called IgE on the test. I think it's immunoglobulin uh, E test. Mm-hmm. And that's to test for basically um, the reaction that your blood has to a specific allergen. They can also test for like an overall IgE um, on a lab, which would, indicate how potentially allergic to like how sensitive you would be to uh, potential allergens. So my son couldn't have the scratch test and they wouldn't give him the blood test for at least two months after his anaphylactic response, because they said that if they did test that, uh, that because of that response he'd already had, that it would show he was allergic to anything they tested for. So that to me indicates that your body is kind of like, in this stress response where it's being more sensitive to everything because it thought that there was a danger. Right. Right. Um, so when we finally had him tested, when he was two months post his anaphylactic response, which in the meantime, of course, we just avoided all nuts. Right. Um, they found he was very allergic to peanuts, but he also was allergic to milk, to cat dander and dog dander and eggs. Cause he was so little, we hadn't introduced all foods yet. So I was like, we were doing milk and we were doing eggs and we had just started some nuts, but they, um, we had, and we had a cat and a dog and I had seen, you know, prior to the anaphylaxis was, was leading up was a lot of rashes and, and eczema, which for people who don't know, it's also known as atopic dermatitis, which is basically red scaly itchy spots of patches of skin. And, um, if it gets really bad, it could be like bleeding and stuff. They're dry and it seems like lotion, nothing really helps. So that, that was our first indicator that there might be a problem as well as like having hives after sitting in the grass or things like that. All of those signs to me say this is more than just a specific thing that's like he's he's reacting to. This isn't about peanuts. This is about his immune system, right? Right. And um so I started to look at it from that angle, but the doctors were not really wanting to help me with that. His overall IgE level for that first test was really really high. I think normal the high end of normal was like 12 and his was over a hundred. So it was like, okay, so that's telling me that basically anything that's a potential allergen could be um, affecting him. And then you look at, uh, do you know what I mean when I say the top eight, right? The top eight allergens. Yeah. Isn't it like peanuts, dairy, tree nuts, uh, fish, like, yeah. Um, what are the other ones? Help me out. So we've, we've got peanuts, tree nuts, dairy, eggs, um, fish, shellfish, soy, and wheat. Those okay. are the top eight allergens. And it's really interesting. It's because it's like those foods, some of them, you know, fish and shellfish. Okay. Tr- nuts and tree nuts, uh, peanuts and tree nuts. They might have something in common. But what do they overall have in common? And when I started digging into this, what was really interesting is the protein in those items is what the people are allergic to typically when they have an anaphylactic response. Not like the lactose in milk where you get a stomach ache, but um, it's usually a casein allergy, which is a protein in milk, and the body reacts to that. All of these proteins don't break down as quickly when it enters the digestive tract, which I thought was really intriguing because there was these other studies being done on gut health and microbiome and in Australia, um, where they were desensitizing kids to peanut protein while at the same time giving them probiotics. And 
that led me into this understanding of leaky gut, right? Mm -hmm. Leaky gut would be where your gut in and of itself is permeable. And the things that what helps it stay the um, healthy is the probiotics, the bacteria that you have in your body that we all have in our bodies and the balance of these bacterias. um, You know, I don't, I don't like to say good and bad, but just a balance of bacteria. And so the kids maybe that had had weaker um, immune systems, which be weaker, you know, um, bacterial colonies, they had a more permeable gut, which means those proteins that would stay whole could pass into the bloodstream and then the body would attack it. And then that was like this light bulb moment for me, like, okay, so those foods all have that in common. That's that structure of that protein being harder to break down. Um, Other, other foods that, that break down easier in the digestive system are not as commonly um, allergic. Although, Pretty much anything can be. Um, I know you're, you've been str- um, struggling with a duck allergy, which I'd never heard of before. Yeah. it. So that was, I'm going to tell you how we got to my husband's and then mine real fast. Because so I had had an anaphylactic response to MRI contrast dye. And so that's how, that was how I got opened up to anaphylaxis, but it wasn't through so, food. So you had an MRI and, and that is that something that they inject into you, the dye? It is. It's an, it, so, uh, because I'm allergic to codeine, I would get hives and like my tongue would swell prior to this MRI where they inject the contrast dye in. It's also called gadolinium. Um, they had asked me, do you have any allergies? And mine were all medicine at that point, all pharmaceuticals. And I had said yes. So they prescribed me like a Benadryl pill, some prednisone, which is a steroid and something else like 12 hours before. And the MRI was actually at like 10 p.m. at night. And I was supposed to take it 12 hours prior. And I remember them calling and going, well, did you have anaphylaxis to the codeine? And I said, no. Like, well, you don't need to take it. But something in my gut was like, you should probably take it. So I did. Had the MRI and then went to bed. I was in college. So my parents weren't around. Woke up for, he was like chemistry class the next day. And I'm like itching all over. I'm like scratching my neck and I'm going crazy. And from the time I started scratching to the time I got to the walk-in was probably maybe half hour, 45 minutes. And I was a dumbass because I was being polite. And I was like, excuse me, I think I'm having anaphylaxis. Can I go to the walk-in in chem class? He's like, yeah, do you want me to call 911? I was like, no, I'm fine. <laughs> I'm on the phone with my mom. And at this point, I'm going, <gasps> and I can feel my airway closing. And then me still being polite because I'm from the Midwest. I wait in line when I get to the walk-in clinic going, <laughs> and I was like, I, it, I, all I think all, all I blurted out was anaphylaxis. So I remember them dragging me into a room and they start, you know, they're shoving needles in my butt and all this shit. But then I lost the ability to see. Um, I, I, I couldn't see anything. And do you it, think that's because your eyes were swollen shut? No, no. So like nothing in my face was swollen and they had given me, I had like a math class and I was like, I'm going to be late. I have to go to math class. And they're like, we'll call your teacher. Like, here's the directory, point out your teacher's name and we'll call them. Like, you'll be excused. Like, don't worry about it. And it was like in 12 point font. And I had it like. I don't know, maybe six inches away from my face and I couldn't read it. And 
I like it, everything was just blurry and it took oh. maybe four hours for my sight to come back. And so the needle in the butt was probably a EpiPen. Would that be epinephrine? Probably. It was probably an EpiPen. Yeah. And all this happened in 2009, October of 2009. So because it was all pharmaceuticals, I never carried an EpiPen. Fast forward to July 2021. Uh, I'd made cod for dinner, codfish. And we had a few months prior, my husband's was eating some like Frere Rochers with the hazelnuts. And he's like, oh, my, my throat's kind of scratchy. And his uvula would swell up, that little dangly part in the back of your throat. Mm-hmm. And that night I'd also made uh, some noodles with pesto, which had pine nuts in it. And he ate, his stomach wasn't feeling the greatest. Um, and he ended up maybe 10 minutes after dinner he was going to give um, his daughter her inhaler and he's like, I can hear her go, dad, are you okay? And he sits down on the couch and like, he's like sweating profusely, turning bright red. I'm like, open your mouth. And I can see it's starting to swell. I was like, you can get mad at me. We're calling 911. I don't have an EpiPen on me. He ends up losing consciousness because he's like, I have to go to the bathroom. So he's trying to go to the bathroom, falls off the toilet, hitting his head. It was a mess. I wanted to kill the paramedics because I knew he was going into anaphylactic shock. They refused to give him an EpiPen because they were convinced he was having an overdose. And they said, if we gave him uh, whatever the anti-overdose medication is, it's escaping. The Narcan. Narcan. If we gave him Narcan, we can't give him Epi, which I found out later not to be true. Luckily, luckily enough, he vomits and is able to be like, no, I'm not overdosing. Like they were dead convinced he was overdosing. And your whole waiting two months, I found interesting about the blood test because they did his two weeks later. Okay. But they only did specific allergens. They never did the total IgE. So that's one thing I want um, his doctor to look at. Because recently he had just like a little lick of uh, his daughter's like smoothie. And the smoothie was just all fruits. He's not allergic to any fruits. But it was made in a blender that could have contained almond milk. And mm-hmm. his uvula started to swell. And so that's him. Me, I started feeding my cat. And she was just getting duck. So no other ingredients in this food, just duck and duck broth. And I started having this sneezing fit like nobody's business. And after about the third time of every time I fed my cat, it was getting progressively worse. My throat started to swell and I'm losing the ability to breathe. And I'm like, this is anaphylaxis. This is exactly what happened to me when I had the MRI contrast eye. So we were able to stave it off with Benadryl and an inhaler, and they gave me an EpiPen. But the wild part to me is they don't have a test to prove that it's duck meat. Um, I asked. They researched. They're like, nope, we don't have one. We're just going to take your word for it. And they, so I have an EpiPen 
I'm also allergic to like sesame seeds, um, mold, which is commonly in citric acid, and a couple other things. But it, were those known allergens before your duck incident, the sesame and the mold? The mold, I just thought I was sensitive to it. Mm-hmm. The sesame seed always like gave me this really bad upset stomach. And like smelling it would just like, I would have this really strong aversion, but I just thought I hated sesame seeds. What, what did you ask for them to test for that? I did. After the duck, and, duck yeah. stuff? Because they're like, does anything else give you an upset stomach is how they asked it to me. Okay. And so they tested all this. um, And it's interesting that you mentioned the top eight because sesame seed is now, it's going to be the top nine Mm -hmm. because sesame is added on. But it's becoming more and more, yeah, likely that. Yeah, but it's not, doesn't have to be labeled on ingredients labels yet. Uh, Yeah, for the, well, it has to be in the ingredients list, but not in the bottom where, where it says the top eight allergens, right? So a lot of extracts and spices can Stuff, be made with sesame it's an seed ingredient, oil. Yeah, an ingredient in an ingredient. Yeah, then right. you, you, mm-hmm. that's so why you can never really know what's in your food. Yet. Right, yeah. so they don't have to list it yet. Scary. So I'm like, I'm not eating any processed foods because the sesame seed was making my throat itchy. And so if duck is airborne, because I never ate the duck. It was just feeding my cat. Yeah. Like I'm paranoid now about food right i I mean uh, understandably like if you're just going about your business and having a snack and then the next thing you know your throat's closing up you would start to be worried about anything you were eating and then when you realize that it's not just so cut and dry that allergens allergies can develop or or change you can suddenly have one when you're older and they can't explain none of the experts can explain why this happens at all no, I mean, they. Ha- a lot of them have theories. I remember you asking me, you're like, well, did you have any an- antibiotics recently? Did you have any um, recent uh, medical procedures or anything, any high stress? You were asking me all these questions. I remember you even asking me, like, were you born C-section? Like trying to go back to the roots of, like you were talking about our gut microbiome and things like that. So that's that's really where where my research has gone. And and I should preface all of this at the beginning by saying, I'm not a doctor. I'm not a scientist. I'm not an expert. In fact, I don't even have my GED. So if that's important to you, you're listening to the wrong podcast. But um, I think what, what all I've come to is, is I've got this list of questions that I would ask people. And my first thought when you were telling me what you're going through is like, how weird is that, that it would be you and your husband going through this yeah. together as adults? And I wanted to see what the similarities might be between what you guys were going with or your environment first. But the first question that like, if I had a list of questions that I wish I could ask anyone who has anaphylactic allergies so that I could see if my theories are correct, which is, were you born cesarean? Were you breastfed? And um, were you uh, given antibiotics often as a kid, especially as a kid? And then were you given antibiotics more recently, but too closer to your, your allergy diagnosis. Um, all those questions are questions that I, I definitely know that that affects the mic, your microbiome. When, when you're born vaginally, you're coded in the microbiome of your mother. Right. And assuming you have a somewhat healthy mother or a mother that's not currently on antibiotics, which they often give the birthing mother antibiotics. So even right. if you were born, Vaginally, they might um, have given your mom IV antibiotics, which would have 
gotten to you and affected her whole microbiome before you pass through, right? The other part is breastfeeding also passes on a lot of those good microbi- uh, microbes and, and also is really healthy for your gut, where the alternative to that is um, is conventional um, formula most of the time. And the stuff that's in there is not, there's not prebiotics to be feeding that gut microbiome. And then antibiotics wipe out all bacteria, not, not some, some are better than others. They work differently. But um, if you were like me, I was born C-section. My mom did breastfeed, but now she says six months. She used to say three months. So it's somewhere that not very long under, not very long under my, uh, as, as, as a mom who's still breastfeeding at 27 months or whatever he is now he's over two, but um not very long. And I did get formula. And then I had chronic ear infections when I was a kid. And I think I had some kind of like maybe pneumonia or something when I was really little. So I was on antibiotics as an infant, as a toddler and through my childhood. And I did, I had like asthma when I was a kid and I had an inhaler and a lot of other signs because asthma and, and, um, eczema go along with, with allergies. So that's, yes. uh, atopic conditions, right. That I think is what it's called. Yeah, I remember sharing this um, little infographic as part of a paper that I had seen, and I'll link it in the show notes so y'all don't get mad. Uh, And it says, modern lifestyle factors that can contribute to the changes in the gut microbiome, and they're listed as antibiotics, basically the modern American diet of high fat, low fiber, transition from rural to urban and suburban living. Uh, vaccines reduce exposure to natural infections and fewer gut parasites and pathogens all according to this infographic lead to food allergies along with genetic predisposition. And so a a lot of the things that we're talking about, I find really interesting. And I was reading a couple studies of how people who are more, who live more rural are less likely to have food allergies. Immigrants who, when they're in their native, um, countries are less likely to have them. And then when they come to more westernized area or a westernized country, they actually then develop food allergies. Right. And it it, it is interesting because I do, I know someone from the Philippines that never had problems and now has horrible allergies in her garden, like her whole face will swell up. And she's like, they never had that there. And, but yep, she's been treated by Western medicine here. She's had multiple rounds of antibiotics um, for different things since she's been here. I also um, know um, that in India, one of the first foods they feed a baby is a snack called bomba, which is um, basically like puffed rice, except it's peanuts. And um, they say there was controversy. So when I had my son in 2013, the rule of thumb was to not feed peanuts to babies until they were at least six months to a year old. Maybe it was even a year old or Mm -hmm. any tree nuts. And then at that same time, right after he was born, they started to change what the recommendation was to, you need to feed it to them in small amounts earlier. So their body gets used to it. And that will make it more likely that they won't have an allergy to it. And the reasoning was that in India, they were feeding kids peanuts at a very, very young age. Um, and even before we would typically be feeling, feeding solid foods to our kids, which is recommended between four to six months for kids, they were feeding, you know, three, four months, um, these little snacks and they were easy kind of like dissolve in your mouth. So it was fine for a baby. And there was a really low, um, allergy to peanuts in India. 
But is it just that they're feeding them earlier or is it that they're feeding them earlier and not destroying their microbiome when they're a, a baby? Because I think so much of what I've been reading, it's not only about micro health of your microbiome, it's the health of it as it develops from childhood. So um, that it's really, really important that kids have exposure, get to play in the dirt, get to be around a lot of things. Um, we're talking what do we do in the United States is we give antibiotics for every little thing. We yeah. wash our hands with antibacterial soap. We're sanitizing things with chemicals that just wipe out all of the bacteria. And so that is where I focused when I was trying to heal my son, because there wasn't any treatment that was recommended to me by our allergist or doctor. It was only to carry an EpiPen and avoid the allergens that we had confirmed. Right. Yeah. And and that was the same for us. And it was the prevalence of adults who weren't allergic to certain types of food that are developing allergies as adults is actually on the rise. And I think the last number that I saw was more than estimated 26 million or 10.8% of the U.S. population of adults has adult onset food allergies. And that is wild to me because what I was reading is as if you develop them as kids, you can sometimes do like those exposure therapies that you had mentioned to wean them off of it. Whereas it is more likely that when you're an adult, there's no getting rid of it. And, and that's, that's concerning. Um, So I would say like, where is there hope like in all of this and, and where, where would we go with this information? And for me and, and because I, I had my allergies were like it, to grass and dust and things like that. So I was often really stuffy. Like I said, I had, uh, was diagnosed with asthma when I was a kid, which I grew out of. Um, but I, I, you know, wake up in the morning stuffy. Um, mm-hmm. my cat, I was allergic to my cat. If I got a scratch from a cat, I would get, it would get red and swollen. Um, if I got scratched by certain plants, it would get red and swollen. So it was like skin and respiratory, um, to environmental allergies. Um, when I went on an elimination diet, which was to eliminate all processed food and all, um, like preservatives, everything, uh, and, and it was paleo. So there was no grain or dairy for a period of time as well. I felt um, way, way better. And then as I added things back, I just went really slowly. And by then I was starting to eat fermented foods. And so initially when I started, I wasn't successful. I had to stop dairy again. Um, but at, over time, I was able to reintroduce all those things that would then like get me to be stuffy and I would not have those symptoms again. And for my son, I started to introduce fermented foods to his diet when he was little. Um, it was a little harder because he was not as into sauerkraut as I was. But um, just a tablespoon of sauerkraut juice mixed into some applesauce or something else, because I didn't know I could ferment applesauce yet at that time. Um, that started to make it so that I was uh, ready to try a scratch testing at home, which would mean I basically just kind of itch a part of it, his hand and put some scrambled eggs right on there and hold it, uh, you know, put a bandaid over it and let it sit for a while and then see if his skin would be red or not. If he could pass the skin, uh, that scratch test at home, then I would like let him try a little bit of something. And so he's, he's no longer allergic to eggs or dairy. Those are regular parts of his diet. And then he's also able to eat many tree nuts, almonds, uh, cashews, pistachios. Um, 
he still shows allergic to, to peanuts, but it's less so on the tests. And so I think really think that um, not over cleaning our environment, not completely making sure he never comes in contact with any of the things that could be scary to us and try to improve his microbiome. And he has not had antibiotics since I learned about this either. Mm-hmm. And he had prior to that. Yes. Um, so he is one of those cases that was, he was born with antibiotics because I was told by my doctor that I had some, some kind of a thing that I needed to, it was a very, it's a common test they give women when they're pregnant. They test for group B strep. And if you have that present at the time, which is common and it's found on anyone's body, if your test is positive, you have to have IV antibiotics before your baby passes through. And so I went along with that because I thought that, um, he could get meningitis if I didn't do that. I know more now, and that is not the case. I also tested positive to group B strep for my second, and which was my home birth, and I didn't do antibiotics, and he was absolutely fine. But that's the way he entered this world was with this, you know, clean and in, in a sanitary environment. And then, you know, when we started to see skin issues, they were meeting that with, oh, that could be um, empantigo or something. And they would give him antibiotics and they wouldn't help the problem because the problem wasn't caused by a bacterial infection. It was caused by his immune system reacting to his the environment because there was no immune system. There wasn't the pre- protection there. Right. So for me, what I see is like, if there's people out there which I know there is, there's a lot of people who seem to become sensitive to gluten or they think it's gluten um, as they age. Um, I would say it's like before you just totally abstain from something, try if you're not anaphylactic from it, try and encourage, I would encourage you to try to add living food into your diet. So probiotics um, would come from a, could come from a capsule, but they're grown in a lab when they come in a capsule and it's usually one or a couple strains. And you don't know actually how much of that is living by the time it gets to your house. Um, the cheapest and easiest way is to learn to ferment foods. But if you really don't cook, you can get like living sauerkraut at most grocery stores. Now um, you could get fermenting fairy online. She ships her stuff. She's been on crow a couple of times. Um, there's ways to do it, or you can take one of my workshops and I'll show you how I make fermented foods, but I make a large array of them. And I think the benefit to making them yourself is that you're getting all of the, the bacteria that are naturally in your environment, your specific right. environment. And then, you're growing them away in a way where they are, you can see in the jar that they're healthy. They smell good and they're happy. And then you're ingesting that. That's what you're putting in your body. There's some probiotics that seem to be only alive during the time they pass through. And there, there's other ones that want to colonize in there. And I, I've heard that dairy kefir wants to colonize. So if you can tolerate dairy, uh, dairy kefir grains are an easy way to try to get probiotics. Yogurt is another good one. Kombucha. Um, there's, there's a lot of ways. There's some food you're going to like that is um, full of probiotics. <clears throat> and that used to just be the way food was because that was part of part of uh, food preservation. Right. Yeah. And the Activia, you know, or the, a lot of the yogurts that claim to have probiotics, uh, like she was saying, you don't know how much is in there or if they're actually alive because a lot of the times those things are pasteurized. And maybe they have to be then added in later. And it's not the same. Um, it just from, and I've learned, like I said, so much about, you know, fermenting foods and helping the gut microbiome. And I, 
had wrote down those top eight and a thought had crossed my mind as well. I mean, not so much with dairy, but a lot of these foods are sprayed with glycophosphate, which is Mm -hmm. Roundup. Yep. And glycophosphate is known to make your gut leaky. It is known to uh, cause stomach upsets. And so if, you know, you're having trouble with gluten, like she said, not only would I try ingesting uh, homemade fermented foods or fermented foods, you know, from a good source, but then when you, after you cut it out for a bit, when you do reintroduce it, make sure it's organic because that glycophosphate does make a difference and that can destroy your gut as well. Especially with grains that's, it's sprayed at the end of, it's sprayed for an insect um, during the growing, but then at the very end, they spray wheat with glyphosate to, to, as a desiccant to dry it out um, and get it ready to harvest. So it's like layered on at, 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 the last part of it's growing. So it's actually in a higher concentration. So while I can't afford to buy everything organic, I make sure I buy my grain organic. And yeah. that seems to make a difference in how we feel when we're ingesting it. And then I also try to use fermentation on those things that might be a common allergen, like fermented dairy and fermented grain. I make sourdough and people say, well, you're going to bake the sourdough so it doesn't kill that kill the bacteria. And it does. Yes, baking it definitely kills the bacteria. But there's more benefits to these bacteria than just the probiotic effects. It also helps break down the parts of these foods that we can't digest easily. So we're letting it do the work for us first before we eat it. Sometimes we're eating it and letting it help us in our gut. Sometimes it's helping us outside of our gut. But all of these things, these bacteria need to eat as well. So you might hear mentioned um, prebiotics, which that's an insoluble fiber. So that's a fiber that you won't digest. It will pass through you and will help bulk stool. So if somebody is constipated, they might recommend like fiber supplements and things like that. But there's a lot of vegetables that have prebiotic fiber, like potatoes and uh, bananas, especially like on the greener side of the banana before it gets really sweet. Um papayas, lots of other types of uh, fruit and vegetables. Um, so if you're eating some type of fruit and vegetable, it doesn't have to be raw. It can be cooked depending on how your digestion is and how you feel. Those things are going to help feed the colony that's in your gut. So the the things that kill the bacteria in your gut are like vegetable and seed oils and, and um, uh, chemicals and stuff like that. So if you can eat more food that you can pronounce and less food that you can't pronounce what's on the label, um, that's going to be helping your microbiome as well. So for anybody who's challenged by this new diagnosis of a allergen, you know, an allergy that they didn't have before there, I don't think there's no hope. I think that the first thing you can do is just try to put something good in and then start to work on the things that you could take out too. Cause it's always harder to stop something that's a habit than it is to start something new. So when, if you feel discouraged, just eat some sauerkraut and then worry about the rest later. Yeah. And, uh, I listened to that episode that you had sent me on Ryan from dangerous world. He had interviewed big country from whiskey, beer and conspiracies. Yes. And he was talking about how he has a dairy allergy, but when he went to Ireland, he was able to eat that dairy and he was told that in Ireland, any, uh, he also has an, uh, allergies to antibiotics. And so in Ireland, any animal that is given antibiotics, whether it's for meat or milk, cannot be used for human consumption. 
And so he suspected that it was more of the antibiotics in the milk in the U.S. Yeah. And I think he even said that he can now buy cheese that's been made in Ireland and yes. in the States and eat it. And this was not just a tummy ache allergy. This was anaphylaxis yes. since he was a kid and, and like had multiple trips to the hospital if he came in contact with even a small amount of milk. So that is huge. And guess what? Cheese is a fermented food. So cheese yeah. is also a fermented food. Um, I, I, that, that podcast was great because I it hit on so many of those theories that I had developed on my own and never had confirmed. And I was just like, yes, this, I, I need to talk to him eventually because it, it was fascinating. Um, the thing that, about that that I thought of with your situation is what do we really know about what's actually in our cat food? Even if you buy the nice stuff, was right. there some kind of antibiotic in that cat food that could because you have had um effects from medicine before oh yeah oh yeah i have uh latex mri contrast dye codeine morphine doxycycline which is an antibiotic um i have like a whole host of things and even like the adhesive band-aid like i can't put a band-aid on my skin without um having an issue and a lot of adhesives actually have a milk protein in them. Wow. And so I have to get like the super hypoallergenic ones and, and not like, oh, it's a little itchy. Like, I mean, I welt up. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's like, it can be a big deal. Right. And so I couldn't for the longest time drink dairy. That was just more of like an upset stomach. But now if I drink raw milk, that's from an A2A2 cow, we're good. Yeah. But if it's, a2a2 and not raw i can't do it i need those living yep and then bacteria it's not only bacteria that's killed during pasteurization but it's even like um different kinds of vitamins and nutrients like lactose intolerance is often a problem but milk in its natural state before it's been pasteurized also had something called lactase yeah and when those things are handed together people can often tolerate it when they can't when it's just lactose by itself so it's funny the answer to that usually is people to drink lactose free milk so they process it even further and get farther yeah. away from it being any kind of nutrition that we would want to eat but yeah, raw milk is another thing people could ex- uh, experiment with, with, and fermenting that raw milk in some way um, can also help with people who can't digest uh, uh, lactose. So, I mean, there's a big problem with our food system and our medical system. It goes hand in hand. They work together. There's a lot of medicine in our food, and there's a lot of um, food in our medicine. I mean, there's even like egg whites in vaccines and things like that. So, that's one of the things when my oldest kid had his first set of vaccines, he got this huge reaction on site and got a huge big welt and a big bump. And I I remember calling the doctor, is this normal? It's not going away. It's still there. And that was just all part of that developing then more skin rashes and then more, you know, and I just didn't know. And I thought everybody does this. I'm not a wuss. Like I'm not going to start. I'm not going to take my, my child rearing medical advice from Jenny McCarthy. I remember I literally yeah. said that to my doctor at that age. And that's why I think that's that psyop, that's that um, controlled opposition to get you to look at Jenny McCarthy being a spokesperson for autism and, uh, and, and vaccines and go, Oh, well, she's, she's some dumb bimbo from MTV. Like I hate that kind of stuff. I'm not going right. to listen to that. Um, so, you know, it's like, 
you know so much more later, but even then with all the damage that I accidentally did to my, my firstborn, like we've still come so far to getting him healthier. So now it's like, as I'm seeing his eczema kind of flare up again, I'm like, okay, what's in your environment. That's kind of bugging you. And like, I should probably, I'll just buy some apples at the store and make fermented applesauce. Cause I will, I can always get him to eat that one. Whereas like sauerkraut, I'm like, please just one tablespoonful. You can spit it out if you want to, as long as it gets in your mouth, you know, um, I'm like pouring sauerkraut juice in his bath water and stuff. <laughs> and, and then I've got a uh, tallow balm that I make. I render my own beef fat into tallow and I whip it into a tallow balm. And that's like the best, the, the fat is closest to what the oils that are on our own skin. Yep. And so that's not something that I had in my um, toolbox when I, he was young, you know, I was putting on aquaphor and like all these petroleum products that I thought is what, you know, it says it's for eczema on the front. It's not helping. Why? <laughs> yeah. And I've, it's, it's weird because I felt like as we cleaned up our diet, as I changed over soaps and I really dove into ingredient lists, that's when um, our food allergies popped up for my husband and I. But you had asked me like, well, you were you on any antibiotics like just prior? And we had been, both of us, for different reasons. And that was really eye-opening because I had never considered that. I, 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 I never really... considered that. I really think that that's a big, big, big part of it. And I think the best thing that you can do if you do get into a situation, because there is a time and a place for antibiotics, I'm sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, if you get into that situation where you have to take them, support yourself at the same time with probiotics, which is just any kind of living food, like sauerkraut, kombucha, like we talked about yogurt, real yogurt. And if you can't you know, get those, get, get a good probiotic supplement, especially the kind that are kept in the refrigerator. Um, and take that at the same time as you're taking antibiotics and also take it afterwards for weeks afterwards. Yes. Um, a lot of doctors will tell you, well, it doesn't matter if you take the probiotic while you're taking the antibiotic because it doesn't help because the antibiotic kills it. Like even so just, just take that. So they're both there. I actually, I had a couple people that I knew recently that had to go on antibiotics for different reasons. And I tried to tell them like, hey, take a probiotic. And they're like, oh yeah, we asked our doctor and we were told we weren't allowed to take a probiotic with antibiotic. And I was like, what do you mean not allowed? They well, said, first of all, not, I don't even like that, that they're allowing. I know, right? Like I right? do what I want. Like, <laughs> But I was like, I was trying to understand, like, I was like, did they tell you why it's not allowed? Like, yeah, I, I don't understand. Reasoning. And they said that um, it would inhibit the, basically make the antibiotic not work. And I don't honestly, with, from what I know, I'm not a doctor, uh, which is probably why you want to listen to my advice. <laughs> um, but I, that doesn't make sense to me because if the antibiotic is the one that is going to kill all of the bacteria, then, then it's going to kill the probiotics as well. So uh, I don't know. A, a yeah. lot of these studies that were being done, um, on bacteria, probiotics being introduced and desensitizing people to their severe allergies were being done on certain strains of bacteria. So there are, most people are familiar with lactobacillus. Um, lactobacillus is a very common bacteria found in fermented foods, found in yogurt. And um, it's been promoted as like the cure-all for like digestion problems and stuff like that. Like that yeah. Activia yogurt or whatever that you had mentioned. Um, that's, that's like, that's one that's like 
it's able to be commercially created and then sold like freeze dried so so that they can add it into things afterwards to say I had some granola. It said paleo granola with probiotics. I was like, there's nothing living in this dry pack of granola like any longer. If there was, there'd be gases building up in there. There'd be moisture. That's, that's what probiotics need to live. They need some kind of a carbohydrate or sugar and they need water and anaerobic environment underwater. Um, no oxygen and they, they make gases like bubbles, like carbonation. That's why it's fun to ferment stuff because it's like crazy mad scientist alchemy kitchen time. And. (laughs) That's there's no probiotics in that. So a lot of the stuff you see marketed to doesn't actually have anything living in it. It's just these free, just dead bacteria that are added to your food after. And it's confusing for people. And they might try one of those things and say, well, I don't feel any better afterwards. And, you know, the reality is, is you just ate another processed food. So that's why if you can't make it at home, find out somebody in your area that makes it and sells it at farmer's market. Um, Kimchi is another really good one. If you've got a Korean family in town, that's making kimchi and selling it on the, you know, back end of the restaurant or something. Or if you can get um, into like, a co-op kind of a place or, you know, a lot of those places really sucked through all of 2020, but I've still, you know, go to our co-op so we can get raw milk. And I know they have beet kvass and kombucha and, and ginger beer, all stuff that's made locally by real producers that are making this with real food. Um, wild fermented is really the key to this. And just like I said before, that's because it's going to take a whole colony of bacteria from your environment. So when they do these studies on a specific strain and they see an improvement, they start to latch on that that specific strain is the one that is curing the allergen. And I'm thinking, I bet they would see more improvement if they had wild fermentation and they had all those things that nobody has ever isolated or named because that is the, we have not solved the the answers, the mysteries of the universe. We don't know the name of every single bacteria. Um, They have a handful of them that they've named and they can isolate them and and apparently see them under a microscope. But it's more magical, (laughs) spiritual than that. Like there is this whole invisible world around us all the time that we can't even see. And that's supposed to be part of us, inside of us, on our skin. And the powers that shouldn't be are encouraging this like fear of bacteria, overuse of antibiotics, overuse of antibacterial washes, bleach, like hand just sanitizer, stuff, hand sanitizer, Lysol, all of the stuff that just kills everything. Well, what happens then? We wipe all of the bacteria out and there's bacteria that we want on our bodies and our skin. And once we don't, and what I talk about often when I'm um, doing my fermentation workshops is the bacteria we do want is going to preserve our food and make it more delicious and create an acidic environment where stuff like botulism can't grow. And the bad bacteria, which I'm using air quotes, isn't really bad because that's the bacteria that breaks things down. That's the bacteria in your compost pile that returns things to the earth. But if we wipe out everything, the things that do come back, because they always do, they might not be the ones that you want or the the balance that you want. So it's always like competitive exclusion is what science calls it when the they have to kind of fight to see who gets to have the territory and the good guys win. 
That's why if you're, if you leave it alone, the good guys win. If it's contaminated with something that's a different story. So I really think we need to stop wiping it all out because the good guys want to win. They want to be there to help you. Yeah. And I think part of our culture though, is the idea of wanting to be clean, this sterile environment, uh, People talk about sterilizing your canning jars and you're like, you can't sterilize your canning jars at home because you don't have an autoclave. Um, yeah, you, you don't have a sterile environment. So the yeah. minute your your cans are out of the boiling water, they have all already have like a colony of bacteria that are starting to form on them. But I think people are so afraid of germs, bacteria, whatever word you want to use that for some people, I feel like the thought of them being like, wait that bubbly stuff in sauerkraut, like that's bacteria, like, and I'm supposed to eat that. Like they could, I, I could see some people freaking out about that, like not realizing because we're so also disconnected from where our food comes from and how food is made that it boggles people's minds. We we can't even imagine how food was preserved before a refrigerator was in the house and a freezer and let alone to think before canning, which was only 200 years ago that that was invented. It's only been doing in the, Canning's only been in the home for just a little over a hundred years. Um, people preserve their food by dry curing, by uh, che- making cheese, and it was all fermentation: beer, wine, chocolate, coffee. All of these things that you use every day are fermented. Cheese, salami, prosciutto—all of those things are fermented in some way. They're using. They create an environment where the best bacteria that's going to preserve the food and turn it into something delicious can work. And so why don't we think about that when we think about our bodies? How can we make the bacteria in our environments work for us, work with us? Because they they say we have more bacteria than we have cells in our body. And I mean, there that's really something, right? Yeah. And I know, because um, this happened to my uncle, but a lot of people with C. diff, which is a lower intestinal uh, infection that they frequently try to treat with antibiotics, but it's become antibiotic resistant. What they have to do sometimes now is this fecal transplant, which sounds really, really gross, where they take feces or poop from a healthy human donor. They somehow spin it down, isolate all the healthy bacteria out and try and recolonize the gut in the lower part of the GI because Otherwise, like you said, those bad bacteria just keep coming back. And that was the only way for some people to get the good bacteria back in. There's been studies with that and it's been extremely successful and they will not approve it. They won't approve it to be used. And it's like, you have to like beg a friend, Hey, can I get some of your poop so I can put it in a capsule and swallow it or, you know, suppository it Yeah, because that that's actually how people are getting better. And I've I've thought of that even with like an ear infection. Like what if I used a Q-tip for a second and then put it in my kid's ear uh, when he had an ear infection, would that help them out? I mean, the bacteria is everywhere. There's that's not studied or talked about, but I, I mean, I haven't done that, but I've thought of it or like the, take the Q-tip from the ear. That's good. And, and put it in the uh, their other ear, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, the, the fecal transplants, interesting. And C. diff is, is caused by antibiotics. Yes. It's a side effect of the big ones. Um, I'm starts with a C. I'm spacing the name. There's, Kefla- there's an Keflex anti- or Keflexin? I think so. There was one that I, I had a loved one that was very, very sick for a long time. And they told him that um, 
taking this high dose three times a day of this antibiotic for three for six months would would help his condition and it did spoiler alert it did not did not help but that was like over and over again how are you feeling if you have loose stool if you have pain in your stomach like we have to to take care of it right away because it could be deadly and that's that c c diff um i can't remember what it stands for but it it was uh it was caused by the you know basically wiping out all the bacteria in your your gut and your your whole body so that the bad stuff can can take hold. Yeah, and while I'm going to emphasize too I am not a doctor and what I'm about to say is not medical advice. Uh what I have done personally in the past if I start to get a tickle in my throat or um an ear infection or something like that is they sell uh, mullein garlic oil to mm. put in the ears. Uh you can put tea tree or lavender essential oil around the ears. Do not put it in the ears. I'll take um oregano oil in like a capsule um or garlic uh you taught me how to ferment garlic cloves and honey and, honey and take yeah. it instead. Um and so that's what I've done. And once again, not medical advice, but there are options out there that you can do. Yeah, we have had our naturopath give us the garlic mullein eardrops. Um, and we actually have mullein that grows on our property, like a lot of it. So I'm going to be collecting it this year. I missed, I missed my opportunity last year with all the other projects, but I'm going to make my own garlic uh, mullein oil for, for the the next season. Um, I find that just having a, a balanced, um, microbiome internally really even helps with things like ear infections. Cause that a lot of like allergies kind of stuff can show up in, in inflammation in your ears as well. Yeah, I have uh, really small ear canals. I actually had tubes in my ears twice as a kid because I had constant ear infections. And I actually, when I go to my chiropractor sometimes, um, I'll have him actually adjust my ears, which sounds super weird, but he kind of tugs my earlobe in a certain way and actually actually feel my ear canal open up and it drain. That's so so cool. Yeah. if If you get a lot of ear pressure or sinus pressure, find a good chiropractor. I know. It's, it's like so many things you wouldn't, I thought they'd just crack your back after a car accident for the longest time. Yeah, there's, a, there's a lot more to it. Yeah. Um, I think that's interesting. You mentioned the ear infections too, like I had when I was a kid and that always meant having that bubblegum drink that you get yep. to have, which was the antibiotics that they would give you. And so that's just over and over again. And with your situation, when you were born, um, your parent, were your parents aware of the limb differences before you were born from an ultrasound? No. So they had no idea of my heart, my hand, nothing. I was a total surprise. I was a C-section baby. Um, so you were a C-section any, anyway? Um, yeah, because... Not, not because they knew... No, I was C-section okay. because I was quote-unquote overdue. And oh, okay. Th- so they and induced your mom th- and took you and then ha- had a big surprise. Yeah. And they uh, supposedly, according to my parents, I was in the NICU, you know, for... I think a couple of weeks, but that first night, um, I ended up having, I guess they said a seizure. I got all the antibiotics like right from day one. Um, and, no, mom, and then no breast milk, then not able to breastfeed. No, because I was, there was, my mom said that she couldn't breastfeed if I remember correctly, or she tried and like, I wouldn't take or something. And then I had to, for whatever reason, get this special formula that was like only by prescription and in like these individual bottles that was, you know, uber expensive. And somehow it was donated to them because it wasn't covered by insurance, but no, I never received breast milk. I had antibiotics. I don't know how many times I remember the bubble gum, uh, constant strep throat, constant ear infections. Um, like I would get strep throat like 
six times a year as a kid. Yes. And that's interesting too, is because strep is another bacteria that's present on our skin and in our environment all the time. But competitive exclusion makes it so that it does not win out. But when you give somebody antibiotics and it wipes it out, then they're, that's, they're, they're this blank slate for that, that to take over instead. Yeah. And so I take it back. It was tonsillitis and their solution for the tonsillitis was take out my tonsils. And then when they took out my tonsils, I just got strep all the time. That was me too. I had my tonsils and adenoids removed when I was in, when I was probably six or seven. Same, same. And that was pretty standard. I think you're a little younger than me, but um, it was pretty standard at that time. And is not, I think less so now that they don't do as many tonsillectomies as they once did. Yeah. I mean, your tonsils are part of your lymphatic system. So are your adenoids and, you know, your appendix plays a role in your body. It's part of your immune system. It helps digest food, your gallbladder, you know, helps digest food. So these uh, surgeries that are totally quote unquote normal, uh, just because they're common doesn't mean that they're normal. You shouldn't be having to have organs removed. Mm-hmm. Even when you think about our wisdom teeth and that they should yeah. fit in our mouth if we had a normal dental arch, because it's just a symptom of a, a poor diet for, you know, basically being um, starved of nutrients, you know, uh, over generations has caused us to now not have all our teeth fit in our mouth. There's yeah. there's a lot of body parts they just decide to cut off or pull out and act like it's just a, a normal normal thing to have happen. And it's it's not or it wasn't once. It is a symptom of our our situation, our lifestyle. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the work of the, uh, Dr. Weston A. Price about the dental arches. And yeah. if anyone wants to go look that up, that's super fascinating. And I did several episodes on my podcast, the Greener Postures podcast, if anybody wants to go back and listen to my, uh, and then I, I I linked to a bunch of their stuff in my show notes too. A really, yeah. really cool uh, research that he did. Yeah. And I love that your episodes are right around the half hour mark. And so they're perfect for, you know, if you're traveling or, you know, running errands, you can get through a couple of them, depending upon how far away you are. And they're these little bite-sized things, whereas yeah. I know some podcast episodes can be like two and a half hours. So it's, I really it's like challenging, these it's challenging yeah. not to continue talking because that's kind of what I do. But yeah, they were, they were a little closer to the hour at first, but now I'm, I'm really trying to stay focused and keep me, uh, my episodes right about an hour so that they're a little more, you know, digestible for people. Yeah, I love your podcast and tons of great information. I'm looking forward to your canning workshop coming yeah. up here at the end of February. That's going to be great. I'm I'm excited. And really, when I've been thinking about this, I've been thinking about canning in this way too. The reason why there is concern for foodborne illness with canned foods where there is not with fermented foods is because of competitive exclusion in fermented foods. There's all, all the whole range of bacteria you're sterilizing food in jars. While you can't sterilize the jars first, once you've closed it into that and closed environment of the canning jar, and then you boil it or pressure can that to either 212 degrees if it's boiling or 240 if it's steam, that can kill all of the bacteria that's inside. So if you don't do it right and you don't kill everything, then it leaves those spores there to then reproduce in a anaerobic environment on at room temperature, which something like botulism, that's how that thrives. So it's the same idea in your body. If you wipe everything out and then have it just sit there, it's like just a, a ripe area for those things that you don't want to start growing. 
Yeah, I remember. So the reason I was on my course of antibiotics, and it was actually antibiotics and antifungals because I kept getting UTIs. So then I would get an antibiotic for the UTI, which would then cause a yeast infection. So I had to get an antifungal. And I went on like this for like six months of just basically alternating. And finally, I was like, I can't do this anymore. Um, And that's when I found like oregano and garlic and like a baking soda wash down there and things like that. Um, That's a... a Another thing that people, I mean, your doctor actually might tell you if when you take an antibiotic is that you might, uh, that you, you can be more prone to yeast infections. Yeah. But then they, the only thing they tell you to do from that is to take the antifungal. Yes. They don't tell you to eat yogurt, you know, or any of the other things that you could try to do to, to stave off yeast and yeast overgrowth is a really a bad sign that your body is not in balance. Like, cause right. you, it's not just for ladies to get a yeast infection. You can get yeast infection in folds of your skin or in your armpits or in your neck. And it's just, it's very uncomfortable and it's painful. And it's like just cheesy yeast that starts growing on your body. And yeah, a, a healthy body shouldn't have that happen. That happens because you have an imbalance of the bacteria. Yeah. My, uh, my husband, when the world kind of went weird and they were first really enforcing masks and things like that, he was put on antibiotics because he developed, because he was wearing the mask all the time. He developed not only an upper respiratory infection, but then developed thrush on the inside of his mouth from the mask. And for people who don't know, thrush is a yeast, yeast infection that happens in your mouth, on your gums or the back of your throat or on your tongues. It's really common for babies who don't yet have a microbiome and they're nursing a lot. So they have that wet, you know, area. It's just asking for that's a perfect environment. If you, uh, you get to know yeast more when you work with fermented sodas and, and sourdough bread and see those, those, the way you can make them happy and want to grow well, well, you don't want to do that on your body. Right. So the opposite of that, keep things dry and make sure there's airflow if you're trying to heal from that. And then also lots of fermented foods. Yeah. I think the, uh, key takeaway here is fermented foods just they're great. <laughs> well, sugar feeds yeast too. So if you're really, if you have yeast and you're trying to get rid of it, keep, uh, you know, eat less sugar for a little while too. Yeah. And circling back to the food allergies thing, if, you know, you're, whether your kiddo has it or you as an adult somehow, you know, develop these food allergies that whether they cause anaphylaxis or just hives and you're worried about it, for me at first, I felt very out of control. And I remember messaging you going, I don't feel safe to go out and eat. And what do I like? I was lived off basically bread for a day and a half because I was afraid to eat anything else. It didn't make sense, but I was so afraid. Right. And honestly, learning how to ferment my foods, learning how to bake bread, canning, things like that, and learning where food comes from has been really empowering. And so I know it can be really overwhelming at first, but you have made this process so much easier through your workshops and just guys go sign up for her memberships. It wasn't meant to be like a promo for her, but I (laughs) swear she has helped me so, so much. And even if you don't have food allergies, if you just want to understand where your food comes from and how to better provide for your family, go talk to Lanny and her memberships and take her workshops because they're phenomenal. Thank you so much. Because that's, you know, fear and stress, that's also something that can really bring your body down and make it yep. susceptible for stuff you don't want. So how do we make ourselves better in those situations? Because I felt 
it was so hard to see a baby that couldn't speak yet go th- have his whole head swollen up, I'm projectile sure. vomiting. It was terrifying. And I felt so angry and scared and helpless after that, that I couldn't talk to anybody who would make any sense for me. And the only thing that started to make me feel better is to take that into my own control. Okay. We don't go to restaurants. We don't eat from the deli. We don't get processed food. I need to learn how to cook actually from scratch. I thought I already was cooking from scratch, but I was, you know, semi Sandra Lee's semi homemade. Or yeah, whatever. yeah. Um, but I, I learned how to actually cook real food from scratch and then just kept building on that. You know, like you learn then you, oh, well, how was the animal raised? Not just, okay, I'm going to cook meat. That's just meat. Um, not a, not a hot dog, you know, not something right. that's already had additives to it. So just singling out ingredients and then learning where things come from. It's just, it can be overwhelming at first, but just a little bit at a time, meet yourself where you are and take just one step at a time to get, you know, your situation just a little bit better. And so that's why I always recommend start by eating something instead of stopping something, because in my mind, like the stopping stuff is really overwhelming and hard. The starting stuff, obviously don't eat the stuff that's giving you anaphylaxis, <laughs> but start having some sauerkraut, some fermented applesauce, some kombucha, whatever you like. And then start to just try to um, eat as well as you can and, and not get too worried about it. And then, then you can like talk to somebody if you can have a naturopath or, or an allergist with an open mind that can help you. Like I did with my son with the contact um, scratch tests at home. Um, there is also a thing that I haven't mentioned to you yet that a naturopath can do it. I can't remember the name of it. So I'm going to have to message it, but okay. it entails basically what I thought was like witchcraft <laughs> when I was younger. And I made, f- I totally disregarded this as an option, but I've now had two people that I know personally say that that's helped them and that it helped their kids where they give the, them vials of the allergen to hold while they do something in the office. It's like a treatment you go for. And you can, it desensitizes them to that allergen. So I have to find the name That's of that. Interesting. And then we can put it on our show notes when we release this. Um, yeah. Cause I personally know people who say that this helped them that and they, and I was like, yeah, yeah. But did you have like an anaphylactic allergy? And they were like, yes. And I was like, Whoa. <laughs> that I was mean, cool. Yeah. I mean, even if I could get it. So, cause I can't be around airborne duck and my husband can't be around cod. It's in its airborne. So we have, we can just get it. So we could like walk through um, a market without feeling like I had to have my EpiPen ready. Like that would be progress for me. Um, yeah. So yeah, I'd be super interested in that. If you guys want to know the name of that, check the show notes. It will be in the show notes. And it almost sounds like a form of muscle testing. It, but- it's, it's similar to that. Yeah. And I, I can't remember if they have one vial with nothing or something. It's like, and then it, it's a treatment you have to go to a few times to, mm-hmm. to, to have happen. And the same thing with the probiotics and the peanuts, my kid's not going to have a peanut butter sandwich. I don't think that'll ever happen in our yeah. lifetime, but he, he can be around it where it's not going to send him to the hospital. And like, when you're really allergic to something, that's all you hope for is like, you don't need to go and have, you know, you're not going to roast a duck in your house. Yeah. But- can you just at least feed the cat without, you know, having right. to have to go to the hospital, right? Right. Like, can I, and I, about a year later, I had cooked cod in the house. Um, there was no cross-contamination. It was just, you know, I cooked mine. My husband cooked his. There was no uh, 
splatter or anything like that. Like there was no cross-contamination, completely different utensils. He served himself. I served my stepdaughter and myself and just smelling it. He, I, his uvula started to swell and I was just like, so and that's, yeah, that's scary. Then you like, you think you walking through a market or going to a restaurant or any of these other things that people really just take for granted. Yeah. That maybe don't even involve eating could send you to uh, the hospital. It's, it's not fun. So how do we get to the place where our immune system is not that reactive? Right. Right. And that's, that's the goal of trying to support your microbiome and your overall health so that you're not in a place where you're susceptible to those kinds of things. And then at least it's not getting worse. Right. That would be ideal. Yeah. Yeah. I think. So is there any fermented foods you guys have been able to add to your diet since we started talking about it? So I haven't made any yet. I did pick up from a local grocer, like some fermented carrots and ginger. And I thought that I would like that. Um, I did not. I spit it out like a toddler. <laughs> um, I'm going to try the fermented applesauce and start with that. I also have some water kefir grains that I want to try um, just because dairy sometimes upsets his stomach. So I'm trying to find something that the whole house can do. And Oh, start a ginger bug. Everybody will like, like a ginger bug. Sugar, water, ginger is the ingredients. Okay. And you treat it like a sourdough starter where you, you know, keep feeding it yeah. and watching it until it grows its yeast. And then you can use that ginger bug to start fermented applesauce. And I do have a YouTube video on my channel preserving today um, of how I, I do fermented applesauce. And you can do fermented applesauce without any starter. You can just Ferment the applesauce, set it on the counter after you make it. it needs to be raw apples, not cooked, and it will grow itself. It'll be bubbly in by t- 48 hours. And you move okay. it to the fridge and you eat it. Um, but if you want to kickstart it, um, or even just you can start making sodas and things like that, which everybody will drink. Like if you have a husband that's picky, a picky eater, you can't force them to do what they don't want to, but you can right. make stuff that they like. Yes. And so the applesauce is always a good one and a ginger bug. So um, I don't think I have a tutorial on how I do a ginger bug, but I could send you, I'll send you a link to, to, for something. And then think about using that to, to just kind of inoculate anything that would taste good with it. Uh, Putting a tablespoon of that ginger bug in other stuff. You don't even have to eat the spicy ginger, just the liquid from it is enough. Okay. And you also have a specific workshop on fermenting that people can go back and watch the playback, correct? Yes. So I do live workshops online. I do live workshops in my kitchen. Um, I have the live workshops that I've done online available for purchase on my website, greenerpostures.com slash workshops will get you to everything I've done. And I have fermentation for food preservation, which is my basically opening how fermentation works, what it is, and recipes for... um, a dry firm or a salt ferment as well um, as a brine ferment. So like a sauerkraut and pickles, for instance. Um, I also have a fermented condiments one where we do salsa, applesauce, um, ketchup, um, relish, that kind of stuff. And I do a fermented beverages workshop as well, where we do kombucha and kvass and ginger beer and root beer, all of those. Um, uh, talk about water kefir and a little bit about dairy kefir in that one as well. All those you can purchase for playback, but then keep in mind that I am going to be doing them again this summer. Um, so June, I'm going to do another live fermentation for food preservation. July, I'm going to do another fermented beverages workshop. And if there's enough um, interest in it, I'll do another fermented condiments workshop as well. Awesome. I'm definitely looking forward to that. And I'm already a part of the membership. So I'm super excited about that. 
And is there anything else that you wanted to add before we wrap up? Oh, I don't think so. Did you, you were going to take one of my fermentation workshops and then you weren't able to come. Is that right? Yeah, I got sick. <laughs> Last summer, right? So I'm going to send you the replay for the fermented vegetables one. That's and so actually that- when Mike had his anaphylaxis. Oh my gosh, what are the odds? <laughs> no. So I'll, I'm going to send you the links and the book for the the the, uh, the fermented vegetables workshop. Okay. And th- that's a, that's like the, my most in-depth book about how to just get started doing it. So you could just get started to do a bunch of different things and figure out what you like and what you guys will eat. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. And then you can come live again if we do it this summer, when we do it this summer, if you want to. And it's because it's a lot of fun when I do it live, because then there's a group of people that can ask. I talk about it from this passionate point of view that and I've been in it for a long time. So it's really helpful to have people that are at all different stages of learning about this so that they can ask questions and we can just really have a good conversation. Yeah, you did a sourdough one. And that was a ton of fun because I've been doing sourdough for a little bit. um, And I was doing sourdough before I met you. And so I was able to like ask questions and then give like a little bit different perspective because I do mine just a little bit different. And so, yeah, yeah, I love the live interactive things. So the sourdough was a, was actually a zoom call for the podcast. So people can listen to that on the greener postures feed all about the sourdough starter. But in uh, March 26 at 3 PM Pacific, I am going to do a live online sourdough workshop, officially a workshop, which means that you meet me in my kitchen. So you'll actually watch me do all the things, not just talk about them. Um, so that's what people can come to live or purchase the replay after. And that'll be my first sourdough official sourdough workshop will be in March. Nice. I'm excited for that. And the one in February is all about canning and Mm -hmm. you have everything planned out for the rest of the year. And I'm uber excited and I really appreciate you taking the time and having this conversation with me. And I hope that, uh, whether, like I said, you have a kiddo or you're an adult yourself and you have this, that you have found this helpful. Yeah. And if anybody wants to reach out to either of us, but me is, you know, a greener postures at PM.me, or you can get me on Twitter or Instagram at greener postures. Like I, I love sharing everything I know because I think that that's how we all can learn from each yes. other um, instead of from the experts. So people who have lived it, who have experience with it. And the more we talk about what's happened to us, the more pieces of the puzzle kind of come together. And I think that's really beneficial. Yeah, absolutely. And because this is a swap cast, if you have questions for me, uh, you can find me on Instagram at one thumb L O N E thumb E L or speed dot bumps dot podcast and the greener postures podcast and speed bumps, I believe on all major podcast platforms, correct? Mostly. Yeah. And if you can't find me, you could always go to greenerpostures.com slash podcast and then find the RSS feed there. And her website and the links and everything for both of us will be in the show notes. Yep. And thank you guys. And I really appreciate you joining us. And hopefully you learn something, even if you don't have food allergies, you learn something about food preservation. Thank you.
deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey everyone, I wanted to thank you for listening to another episode of Speed Bumps. If you're enjoying this podcast, I would really appreciate it if you subscribed on whatever platform you're listening to this on. If you're listening on Spotify, I would really appreciate if you clicked that five-star button. And if you're on Apple, you can click the five-star button and leave a written review if you're so inclined. If you're interested in coming on my show, you can reach out to me at speed.bumps.com podcast on Instagram.